This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss congressional Republican proposals to reform the Medicaid program, likely via per capita caps. With me to discuss the topic is the executive director of the National Association of Medicaid Directors, Matt Salo. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Mr. Salo's bio is posted on the podcast website, and just to note, for this interview, his comments will be his own. On background, what the ACA chiefly does is subsidize insurance coverage for the poor and near poor via Medicaid expansion and tax credits. As early as this week, the House Republicans will mark up ACA repeal or reconciliation legislation in the Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means Committees that will negate or substantially undermine this achievement. The Republican House legislation is expected to repeal Medicaid expansion under the ACA that has to date added 11 million lives to the program that now covers in some 74 million Americans. Though House Republicans have not yet made public their proposed legislation, there's evidence leadership will propose to end ACA Medicaid expansion in 2020. That means after 2020, the 32 states to date that expanded Medicaid coverage will effectively go back to their pre-ACA federal matching rates. If these states wanted to maintain expansion, it would cost them approximately $250 billion. Beginning in 2019, all states would receive payments in the form of per capita caps. Because Medicaid costs per penny are expected to rise faster than states' capped amounts each year, it's estimated all states would be on the hook for another $250 million over the next decade. With me to discuss Republican proposals to reform the Medicaid program, that the National Association of Medicaid Directors states in its literature could expose states to the greatest intergovernmental transfer of financial risk in the country's history is again Matt Salo. So Matt, with that as a somewhat lengthy introduction, let me begin by asking you very briefly to describe the work of your organization, again, the National Association of Medicaid Directors. Sure, so NAMD is essentially the trade association for the 56 individuals in all the states and U.S. territories who run the Medicaid program. So our members are state government employees, uh, but they are the ones responsible for running the program that uh, collectively accounts for about half a trillion dollars uh, of state and federal spending per year uh, and currently covers more than 73 million Americans. We are a bipartisan group, by definition, and we are consensus-based. So it's actually, uh, as we talk about reform proposals, and I know we'll get into this more later, uh, that certainly creates uh, logistical and uh, strategic challenges of trying to figure out how best to stay engaged, uh, given that requirement around bipartisan consensus. Okay, thank you. As I stated, though no one has seen uh, what legislation the House Republicans will mark up this week, what's your understanding of the current House Republican Medicaid reform proposal? So 
Um, as you pointed out, we have not seen the details. Um, we certainly expect there to be markups soon. Um, but what we're looking at or what we're anticipating is uh, pretty significant uh, changes to the financing uh, sort of underpinnings of Medicaid, both in terms of the, the underlying Medicaid program as well as the expansion uh, that was a part of the Affordable Care Act. And uh, I think the, the numbers being thrown around range between half a trillion and a trillion dollars in federal savings over a, over a 10-year window. And, um, you know, and uh, it would certainly look at requiring states to uh, convert at least some portion, um, most likely the expansion population, if not um, other parts, of the Medicaid program uh, into a per capita cap funding arrangement, uh, which would limit the, the federal uh, spending uh, and limit the federal exposure uh, in terms of future cost growth and, uh, as, as you pointed out, uh, financial risk of uh, paying for and taking care of uh, the, the country's health care safety. Well, then let's get into the details, of course, here. Uh, let me ask first by... Um does your organization have a preference, or maybe you individually, whether it's per capita caps or a block grant? So the short answer to that question is no. Um, we, you know, as, as, as I said, the, uh, the Medicaid directors were civil servants. And, um, you know, every one of my members reports up, if not directly, then somewhat directly to a governor. And the question around, you know, should you block grant or should you per capita cap, or which of the two is better, is generally a combination of a highly political question, which is above the pay grade of my members. Mm -hmm. uh, the governors themselves are going to be weighing in and weighing in in quite possibly very, very different ways. Uh, but another way to think about it is um, block grants and per capita caps and allotments and, and other ways to rethink how Medicaid is financed can kind of come down to basically a, a formula fight. And you can think about block grants, um, you can think about per capita caps, you can think about allotments, um, and the devil really is in the details. You know, when is the base year? What are the trend rates? Uh, are, there tr are there trend rates for different populations? Are there exceptions for, um, you know, for crises that happen in, in the meantime? A lot of those questions, um, you, know, you know, what's better, a block grant or a per capita cap, really is going to come down to an individual state looking at the numbers and saying, you know, is A better than B for me today? And what about two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now? Uh, so, you know, th that's not necessarily as political, big P political, of a question as should you block grant program, um, but because it sort of creates so many formula fights and food fights, it's something that there just isn't going to be uh, consensus on amongst our members. Uh, thank you. So you're right. This all, like everything, comes down to the specifics and, as you note, the formula uh, there are several variables in all this. Let, let's just delineate them possibly more clearly. Um, 
one of the beyond what the baseline year is relative to what amount they start with there's of course how do they uh, year over year grow uh, that amount of money uh, one of the concerns uh, relative here is when and if there is or maybe not if but when there is rather the next Zika or other unanticipated outbreaks uh, MacPac uh, discussed this uh, last week when they met, in fact, I think Sarah Rosenbaum, the chair, noted specifically no one anticipated Zika. Um, there's also two rising drug costs. Uh, there are other variables in this that make the formula uh, difficult year over year to maintain. Are there other issues or concerns you're hearing from Medicaid directors um, relative to how this formula will or won't work? Yeah, I guess I would say the, the primary concern uh, that I hear from my members it basically boils down to uh, what's, what's the primary motivation for the federal changes that, that may happen. And if the primary motivation for the federal changes are primarily or purely to reduce federal spending, then you know, you're really looking at a, a budget-driven set of proposals. And generally, when you end up with a set of budget-driven proposals uh, in the context of a, uh, of a health care situation, then you, know, you, you run the risk of driving health care solutions that are budget-driven as opposed to health care-driven. So, for example... Um, you know, the questions about when is the base year, what are the trend rates, it all boils down to are, are these designed to keep up with the underlying drivers of healthcare spending or not? And if they are, then you can probably figure out ways to work within that, and if they're not, then they're going to put states in the position of having to make very, very difficult decisions, as in either spend a lot of their own money, which they don't have, um, or limit access, limit coverage, limit eligibility, reduce payment to providers, and a bunch of other things that will be not just politically unpopular, but will actually be bad health care policy. Right. So I think we would both agree that this is largely budget-driven. And the problem for this federalism-type approach is states, I think with the exception of Vermont, can't deficit spend. And the problem with Medicaid is it's, it's this counter-cyclical reality where when the economy tanks, Medicaid spending obviously goes up. So I'm assuming these are primary concerns amongst your members. Yeah, so you know, when when I talk to my members and they they're kind of scoping out what are the drivers of healthcare healthcare costs or what are the drivers of Medicaid spending in their state, by and large, practically all of my members will say there are two drivers of increased healthcare or increased Medicaid spending. The first of which is enrollment, and enrollment can be due to a lot of factors. It can be due to you know, counter-cyclical changes or recessions or other types of macroeconomic issues, putting more people out of work, out of access to health insurance, or below the poverty line. 
Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The second broad issue where they kind of where my members report um, is is really driving Medicaid spending is prescription drugs. And you know you can think about things like Zika, where you know as as you pointed out, you know no one even knew this was an issue a couple of years ago. Similarly, uh, for things like hepatitis C, you know mm-hmm. when the you know when the pharmaceutical cures uh, to hepatitis C came around a couple of years ago, no one really knew this was coming, and no one knew it was going to be as expensive as it was. Uh, but that was something that a lot of people could look to the current structure of Medicaid to say, well, as much as we're spending, we know, or, or as expensive as these drugs are, we know that the federal government that is there to share in the risk and to pay for their share, no matter what we do moving forward. And so, you know, I don't know what the next blockbuster drug is. Um, that's going to have that kind of exposure, you know, but we do, what we do know is that there are things in the pipeline and things that are percolating, popping up all the time. You know, we, we see, um, you know, there's a drug called Spinraza that just got approved by the FDA, um, to treat, um, muscular atrophy. And I'm hearing, I'm seeing list prices for this drug at $750,000 a year. Um, you know, we, we, we anticipate there are treatments for, for horrible things like sickle cell anemia, uh, that are going to be, you know, potentially extremely expensive. And certainly the, um, you know, the holy grail of a lot of, of pharmaceutical uh, innovation development and, and, uh, and testing is treatments for Alzheimer's. And we desperately need those to try to improve the health and the and the well-being of the nation's seniors. But if we actually get to a point where we've got something that looks like it works, and everyone in this country is going to be taking it, um, that's not going to come cheap either. So, you know, we don't know what they will be. We don't know when they will arise. We don't know what they will cost. But we know those things are out there, and they will happen at some point. And so I think the, you know, the key takeaway for a lot of my members is if you think about it from a very philosophical standpoint, a block grant or a per capita cap really isn't that different from the relationship that state Medicaid programs have today with managed care plans. You know, every year you contract with a managed care plan and you set a capitation amount. You set an X amount of dollars that is going to go to the plan to take care of certain populations. And as long as that amount is enough, then that's what the plan gets. And that's what they get um, uh, no no matter what happens. Uh, And as long as the amount of money is enough, you can make it happen. You can make it work. But I think what happens in the real world in capitation payments and negotiations of managed care plans is that when things happen, when there are uh, recessions, when there are hepatitis C uh, blockbuster drugs that come out, when there are changes in the underlying nature of the healthcare cost drivers, the state and the managed care plan can, can come to a table and say, 
wow, we didn't expect this. Let's renegotiate. Mm -hmm. And that's the key thing that I think people would be looking for in a situation like this is, you know, okay, you can set a per capita cap payment. You can set a block rent amount. But what happens when the landscape changes? Is there an opportunity to say, oh, you know, the world is different. We need to react or not. And mm -hmm. I think that would be the key issue that's going to drive it. Because if there isn't, um, then I think that will certainly make a number of people uh, a little bit more concerned about the exposure. Yes, thank you. So you did note in your, I did read some of your policy papers from December. You do note the rising price of some of these specialty drugs. You note biologics list prices approaching 500000 or more annually. Let me ask you about the interaction, and this was also a MACPAC discussion last week. What's your sense of, to the extent, whether it's, let's say it's per capita caps, to the extent to which states' flexibility in negotiating with the Fed's 1115 waivers is compromised at all? Have you had that discussion or spent time thinking through the interrelationship between this reform to Medicaid and... Uh, states exploiting 1115 waivers? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, um, you know, Medicaid is extraordinarily complex, and it is drastically different from one state to the next. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, it has a common mission, but, you know, the Medicaid program that is operated in a big 1115 state, like, say, Massachusetts or New York or Texas, uh, is very, very different than the Medicaid program that is operated in a state like, say, North Dakota or Nebraska or Georgia. Um, and one of the things that makes Medicaid so unique uh, and is going is to make some of these conversations very, very complicated is as you're thinking about how to take 50 states, and potentially convert the funding into a per capita cap or other arrangement. Mm -hmm. The big questions are going to be, what gets calculated at, into that base? Now, you can look at your, you know, you can look at all of the fee-for-service spending in your claims, and you can add that into the base. You can look at all of the uh, capitation payments that a state makes to a managed care plan and Put that in the base. You can look at all of the, you know, nursing home or other homing community-based services payments and put that into a base. Um, but increasingly, as you've seen, states um, really get aggressive or creative or innovative around the 1115 waivers. Whether it's the the big DISRIP waivers, mm -hmm. um, you know, that you've got in New York and Massachusetts and Texas. Um, or, or other types of approaches, um, or as, as you're looking at how so many states right now are trying to experiment with trying to figure out how to fund or how to pay for the social determinants of health, mm -hmm. and sort of taking Medicaid away from a strictly medical model and trying to figure out what types of non-traditional social and economic factors uh, you know, safe and stable housing and food supply and... Um, lead exposure uh, is the classic, yeah. You know, lead exposure, um, you know, you know the Flint, Michigan, you know, healthy water issues, mm -hmm. um, it's, et cetera. 
Um, it, it's extremely unclear how any of those um, areas might get addressed or not in this conversion to a, uh, a new funding system. Lot, a lot to be worked out. Since I referenced your policy papers, and as a going out question, you have a good number of recommendations for improving, or the directors do for improving the Medicaid program. Not to ask you to list through, and they're numerous. What, uh, what more generally, aside from Medicaid reform under ACA reconciliation via some per capita cap formula, what other are your top policy? Uh, reforms under Medicaid? So, I, I, you know, we put together, and this was well before the election and well before we knew that <clears throat> per capita caps and block grants and ACA repeal and replace discussions were going to be such a prominent part of the mm -hmm. landscape. Uh, we had put together our wish list of, you know, things about the Medicaid statute, the federal Medicaid law, that we think ought to be changed mm -hmm. just because it makes for a better, more effective, more efficient program. And there's a lot of things in there, um, ranging from uh, how we uh, deliver, pay, and pay for prescription drugs. You know, that comes up a lot, mm -hmm. again, with, with Medicaid. Um, but also with things like how we pay for uh, health care that's delivered uh, in federally qualified health centers. Um, we had a lot of reforms that really try to get at some of the um, uh, the fragmentation of mental health and substance abuse treatment mm -hmm. uh, that currently exists in, in the healthcare system. And a lot of other recommendations um, around the, the intersection between Medicare and Medicaid uh, the, the low-income, frail seniors and, and people with disabilities who uh, comprise the group we call the dual eligible. Right, right. So there's a whole, there's a laundry list of things that Medicaid directors, on a bipartisan consensus basis, would say. Here are things that need to be fixed in order to make a more efficient, more effective program. Um, some of those uh, tilt at windmills of very powerful vested interests like, for example, pharma uh, or the health clinics. And some of them, quite frankly, might spend more federal dollars. You know, so, for example, one point uh, that we like to remind people is that Medicaid pays for more than 50%, more than half, of all long-term care expenditures in the country. Mm -hmm, right. So we right. take, you know, you take everything that Medicare does, you take everything that private long-term care insurance does, and you take every dollar that is spent out of pocket, Medicaid still spends more than all of that combined. And what that, what that says to people, what that says as a policy is, if you want to get long-term care services in this country, and let's face it, if we if we're also if we're all lucky enough to live long enough, pretty much all of us will. Right. But if you want long term care services in this country, you have to impoverish yourself to right. get them. Right. And that is a terrible public policy. But that's what we have. So we need to do something to strengthen, to create a rational long term care policy in this country. 
that would reduce Medicaid expenditures, but it will likely require additional federal spending to do that. So, you know, these things are not necessarily no-brainers, but if you want a consensus, bipartisan look at what Medicaid directors would say, here's how to improve the program we run, that's what that list will tell you. Okay, thank you, Matt. Sadly, we're at our time boundary, so I appreciate this uh, very brief overview, both of what's proposed and more generally uh, issues in the Medicaid program. So thank you for your time. Sure thing, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.